This week, the Biden administration announced plans to reduce homelessness in the U.S. by 25 percent in the next two years. At the same time, cities around the country are grappling with their unhoused populations, which means it's an issue that's touched many of you. Hi, my name is April Harris, and I work for the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. I'm a grassroots leader, which means I I have lived experience with homelessness. I'm also part of the Bring Chicago Home campaign, where we are trying to have more affordable housing and more wraparound services in the city of Chicago, because as you might not know, there's over 65,000 plus people experiencing homelessness in the city of Chicago. My name is Julia Kay from Oklahoma City. I dealt with homelessness when I was pregnant with my daughter and I had my three-year-old son. Um, And that period of displacement and homelessness lasted for about three years. That was us jumping from car to couch to house to friend to family member to whatever was next. Um, Because of that experience that we had and lived for so long, I actually started a nonprofit called Indigo Door Project to help single parents who were dealing with displacement and homelessness. Thanks for those messages. So what is the most effective way to address homelessness? We dig into the administration's new plan after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our first guests. Jeff Olivet is the executive director of the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness. That's the federal agency behind the plan. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Jen, it's great to be with you. Also with us is Dennis Colhane. He's a professor of social policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Colhane, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Jeff, let's start with you to get more information on the plan. It's being called All In. One of the goals is to reduce homelessness by a quarter by 2025. What are the steps being taken to get there? This is an ambitious goal we've laid out. Uh, we we are truly trying to go, take a multifaceted approach to this, not only addressing the crisis we have in front of us, scaling up the housing and supportive services that we know work, but also going upstream and trying to prevent homelessness before it ever happens. Prevention is a key component of the plan, as you mentioned. How does the administration hope to prevent people from becoming unhoused? When we think about pathways into homelessness, it looks very different for different people. Young people might age out of foster care and end up in shelters or couch surfing or on the street. Older folks might have challenges paying the rent on a fixed income when housing costs are rising. Families face hard times around loss of job and medical issues. People become homeless for all kinds of reasons. When we think about how to stem the inflow, we have to think about cross-system solutions. That means working across healthcare, criminal justice, foster care, other pathways that people travel into the experience of homelessness, trying to identify who's most at risk and target resources before the moment of crisis. Well, and I think it's important to understand how the administration is defining homelessness, because sometimes being unhoused is is hidden. That's right. There are some people who are very visibly homeless, who are living in encampments or living on the street or in vehicles. We've got a really good handle on those who are staying in shelters. Uh, that's kind of a, a, a countable number of people. But then there is also a lot of invisible homelessness uh, where people are either not ever coming in for care in the systems that we have or they're doubled, tripled up with family and friends, moving around, staying in motels, staying in vehicles. Uh, so w- when we think about how to intervene – we need to get a better handle on 
the whole range of folks experiencing homelessness. I think the other thing that's important to realize is that it's not the same group of people over the course of a year. Mm -hmm. So when we count homelessness on one night in January and and say, here's the, a snapshot, we also know that many people exit homelessness through the course of a year, and many people fall into homelessness every year. Well, Megan Hustings is the Deputy Director at the National Coalition for the Homeless, and she sent us her thoughts about the all-in plan. All-in is a fantastic start in the right direction, uh, really towards inclusion of people who have experienced homelessness, the true experts um, as decision makers and key advisors in creating uh, and evaluating uh, federal policy and programs. The plan also makes some strides, some, towards limiting communities' reliance on you know, misguided criminalization practices that uh, essentially disappear people experiencing homelessness from the public's view. Uh, our, we, we still have a long road ahead of us. Again, that was Megan Hustings, the Deputy Director at the National Coalition for the Homeless. Professor Colhane, as someone who's been researching homelessness for decades, what are your thoughts on the federal plan? Well, I'm encouraged, uh, and I think that it's a strong statement of principles and goals uh, that are well needed. Uh, you know, the, of course, the devil will be in the details in regards to what resources are ultimately committed. And uh, so it's not just the administration, but it's the Congress that has to be able to commit the permanent housing resources that we know are needed and to fix the safety net, which we know is badly broken, especially with regard to people with disabilities and people who are aging. Let's talk about the funding piece of this for a minute, Jeff. How much has been allocated for this plan or do you hope to be allocated for this plan? There are a lot of resources that are already beginning to hit communities. A lot of the pandemic-related resources during the last couple of years, I think, helped us as a nation stave off what would have been a much worse crisis. I'm talking about things like the child tax credit, uh, eviction uh, prevention dollars, things like that. Now we've got uh, money from the American Rescue Plan in the form of uh, of support for cities to try stuff around housing and services to really get creative around their solutions. We're also seeing a number of states step up with state-level funding. We're seeing cities pass bond measures to support the development of affordable housing. Our belief is this needs to be a federal, state, local, public, private, philanthropic, business community, faith community effort. It's all got to be aligned. The president continues to ask Congress for additional housing resources in his budget requests. We're going to continue pushing in that direction. As Professor Culhane said, uh, Congress ultimately decides how much federal funding is allocated to these programs, but it's going to take all of us. It's not only a federal investment that's going to help us achieve that 25% reduction goal. So on the federal side so far, how much money has been allocated to support the program? We'll see what happens with this Congress right now that, as we speak, is considering the FY23 budget. That will be a really important factor. The federal budget includes many, many funding streams for veteran homelessness, family homelessness, HUD-funded programs, health and human services supports in the form of behavioral health and uh, mental health substance abuse treatment. It's very hard to get a read on what's going to happen with this current budget. Uh, there, there are good breakdowns of past budget uh, allocations. Our plan outlines a number of the federal endeavors that have already been undertaken over the last couple of years. We're talking about the Biden administration's plan to reduce homelessness with Jeff Olivet, the executive director of the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, and Dennis Colhane. He's a professor of social policy at the University of Pennsylvania. The plan follows the housing first model and it treats housing as health care. What does that mean? 
I grew up in the healthcare for the homeless movement where we said that exact phrase very often, Jen. We said housing is healthcare because we know when people are living outside, when people are living in tents, even when people are living in shelters, it is extremely hard to take care of not just basic needs, but all of the complex stuff people are facing when they've had experiences of trauma or domestic violence, mental illness, substance use. It is really, really difficult for people to get clean and stay clean when they're living outside. It's very difficult to deal with psychiatric illness or to deal with trauma when you're afraid every day of what's going to happen. Am I going to make it through the night? The The plan really does focus on housing as the fundamental solution to homelessness, but not the only solution. Housing alone is not always sufficient for people. We need to make sure that we're providing good wraparound supports so that that housing is sustainable for folks. Professor Colhane, when we look at the housing market and especially the availability of affordable housing, how has that affected homelessness in the U.S.? Well, it's been the main driver of the increases in homelessness that we've seen, especially on the West Coast since around 2014. Um, We can see a very clear statistical relationship between the increase in the median rent and the growth in homelessness over that period. So the housing market is the fundamental challenge here um, in terms of trying to prevent homelessness because, you know, the homeless assistance programs don't control any levers with regard to the housing market. So that's a that's a fundamental problem. Well, the plan hopes to expand affordable housing in the U.S., Jeff, and you've acknowledged how important that is to preventing homelessness. How does this plan get us there? Earlier this year, the White House released a housing supply action plan that aims to re-energize and speed along the pipeline of development for affordable housing. As I said earlier, we're also seeing communities and states try new things, create zoning uh, relief and and regulatory relief to try to both reduce the cost of affordable housing in development and the barriers that make it a really long-term endeavor. So we're trying to do a lot of things at the federal level to think about creative ways to finance affordable housing and ways that we can create regulatory relief. And we're also looking to states and localities to do the same. And let's bring a new voice into the conversation. Tomas Banks is a veteran who was previously homeless but received housing earlier this year. Tomas, you lost your apartment in 2019. What happened? Um, It was a a culmination of things, honestly. Um, I lost my job. Um, I was dealing with uh, the loss of my mother and um, a partner that passed. And it was just just, the, just life in general. And um, you, you become a bit more um, closed in. I have a degree. I was in a professional capacity in work. Um, people didn't think I was homeless because I didn't look homeless. So um, you hide. You hide in plain sight. And uh, it, there's, a, there's a sense of pride and you're just embarrassed that it happened. So you continue living your life or try. And I heard earlier about people living in hotels and that's what I tried to do. And that's where my money went, um, trying to continue the lie, if you will. What do you think some of the most common misunderstandings are uh, around being unhoused? Um, that you're lazy and that that's what you want and that you don't want to work. Um, what I found um, living in McPherson Square Park for a few years is that there are people with multiple high-level degrees. 
Um, there are people with intelligence. There's a high level of uh, military veterans that are there. One of the main issues I find is that we need to work harder on um, creating a smoother transition for our military after they get out of the service. For example, your most of the service record is uh, six years. It's four years active and two years reserve. There's a full program of how you're transitioning from active to reserve. But once you in your reserve status, there's nothing. I actually called in and they, they were like, why are you calling? And there was no information, nothing. So I had no knowledge that there were advanced services available for me because I serviced our country. Um, that's something that I think will aid in limiting homelessness and also limiting um, the lack of services for people with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to our conversation about the federal plan to end and prevent homelessness. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's been said so far about the federal strategy. I think it's a great one. I'm, I applaud the administration and echo the sentiment that we also need the assistance of um, Congress, um, as well as every agency. Um, federal, we need uh, volunteers. Uh, one of the issues I think is necessary um, as far as not scaring the homeless population is having someone that has experienced it be out in the field working with these people. They have the stories. They can actually access those individuals and determine people that aren't in the system, that are living in their cars, that are living in hotels, and help them with transitioning to services faster. Um, possibly stopping them from going on pathways that aren't getting them to where they need to be. Another thing is the the timeline that it takes to get services. Um, You wait, there's a lot of waiting. And so as you, as you mentioned earlier, um, the elements are a a concern. It's very dangerous in, I hate to say it in shelters specifically for females, but it's just dangerous in general. Um, When you're homeless all the things that you have become your world. And so the fact of the matter that your things can be taken at any moment is really, it's, it's just scary. So you're living in fear every day. Jeff, I'd love to hear you respond to what we've heard from Tomas, because part of what I'm hearing is, is that there needs to be a better strategy around connecting people to resources that they need um, maybe more services brought to people where they are rather than, expecting them to seek them out. What do you think? First of all, I'm awed by Thomas's, or by Tomas's um, wisdom, courage in speaking out on this issue. And, and uh, Tomas, when I heard you talk about your story and the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, your military service, um, you know, a lot of times people out there in the world think about homelessness as an individual failure somehow. And that is just not how I see it. I think it's a societal failure. I think we have failed our military veterans if they become homeless after they've served this nation. I think we've failed our young people if we let them age out of foster care into homelessness. And I think we've failed our senior citizens who are one of the fastest growing groups of people experiencing homelessness. This collective failure, I believe, can be tra- uh, can be really transformed into a collective success. The question about waits for services is absolutely true. People are on waiting lists interminably for housing, for case management, for access to health care. And that wait time can be deadly. Today is 
Homeless Persons Memorial Day. Around the country, we get together and read the names and memorialize and remember people who have died. Uh, it's a travesty when people die without a home in one of the wealthiest nations in human history. Mm-hmm. Professor Kulhane, uh, we just heard there from Jeff that people think about homelessness as an individual failure. And, and it makes me wonder what we know about the number of not just individuals who are experiencing homelessness, but families who are impacted by this as well. Sure. I think that we're at about 80,000 families uh, at a given time are experiencing some kind of homelessness, um, or excuse me, it might be 80,000 people in families. Uh, and so it affects every you know subgroup in our society. Um, homelessness among families has been declining. In fact, one of the things that I think is not well known is that we've made a lot of progress in homelessness. Even this most recent report shows uh, the, that there was a decline in homelessness among young adults and youth, a decline among veterans. Um, so progress has been being made since 2009, uh, but it has been overwhelmed by the growth in unsheltered homelessness, especially on the West Coast. Uh, so we, even the slight increase in the last few years is really masked Um, a continuing progress in many other parts of the country and for other populations. I want to turn now to DeAsia Johnson. She's a registered nurse who provides street outreach support through Pathways to Housing in D.C. The support that I would like to see in the future, before anything, is housing, housing first. So giving clients housing uh, without the stipulations, without them needing to be sober, without them needing to have a job or income, but to give them this housing in order to um, support them and provide them with the necessary wraparound services so they can reintegrate back into the community. So we hear DeAsia describing a housing-first approach, which prioritizes giving housing that's unconditional, permanent, and then provides additional resources. Professor Colhane, looking at the research, what are the most effective ways to end homelessness? Well, for people who experience chronic homelessness, people with disabilities, we have a well-established intervention, a housing-first intervention, which is providing a permanent housing subsidy, the support services to get into that unit and to hold on to it and be a good neighbor and get integrated into that community. So it's the combination of support services with the permanent housing subsidy. But most people who experience homelessness actually are experiencing a relatively brief crisis and we have found that a program called Rapid Rehousing is very effective in getting people back into a stable place to live. And about 85% of those folks remain stably housed a year after they have left that program. And the assistance tends to be about a year in duration. In some cases, it can be two years. Jeff, is child care part of what's being addressed in this federal plan? It is. We talk about a range of supports that people need and, and want to be able to remain stably housed, and child care is certainly one of those things. Uh, so is health care. We know uh, from the successful work on reducing veteran homelessness by 55% over the last decade that creating a wraparound health care system is critical also, not just for veterans, but that's true for families and youth as well. Child care, back to the the question that you raised, is absolutely essential for parents of young children, particularly children who are preschool age. And we know that that group of families is predominantly headed by black mothers and Latina mothers. And if we're not addressing the supportive service needs of those parents and their children, 
then we're really doing them a disservice. We're discussing how cities are grappling with unhoused populations. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation on how the federal and local governments are addressing homelessness. Let's hear more from DeAsia Johnson with Pathways to Housing DC. When I first began working with Pathways, I met a client out in an encampment, and this client was living in his tent, but somehow he had a, a full sofa in his tent. He was unable to walk, actually, so he was confined to that tent and to that sofa for months. So months and months, he's, he's sort of wasting away within his tent, and it just kind of made me sit back and think, well, has anybody been looking for him? And, you know, is, is there anybody that's out here checking on him? Does anybody know that he is stuck in his tent? Um, so throughout the time with that client, he eventually was able to get an emergency housing voucher through D.C., um, but unfortunately the client passed away before the housing. So this moment, it, it stuck with me. Sorry, I'm going to cry. Oops. That it stuck with me because he was alone. He was alone and he had friends throughout the encampment, but there there wasn't enough help and support before he passed away. Um, So now that has just given me the drive to just go even harder to help my clients and to provide the support that they need because housing is a human right for everybody. Deasia, thank you for sharing that with us. Tomas, you also received housing through Pathways to Housing DC, and today is the one-year anniversary of when you were approved for housing. What was that process like for you? Um, it was everything. Um, <clears throat> I've uh, been told that, I'm sorry, I'm still affected by Deasia's mm-hmm. story, and thank you for sharing that. Um, it was uh, it was everything. Um, I was told that mine went through faster than most people. I was told that people had been on the list for two years prior to me, and um, mine went through fairly quickly. I'm pretty much a positive person, even though uh, based on the, even with the circumstances, and so I just pe- press forward. But it's a very detailed process and um, you just have to continue and move forward. Uh, when I got the news on this uh, last year, this time um, I'm tearing up, I was incredibly encouraged. I had applied for two other places and was denied. And so I chose a different path. I decided to write a, uh, a compelling email first about what I've been dealing with. And letting them know how I am so incredibly um, uh, need, I I want this badly, and I would be a great example. Um, You know, I do everything in my power here. I sweep. I do everything to make sure that this beautiful building remains that. Um, I got some really um, encouraging news. We had I had an issue here, and the. Um, developer came to check out my place and he came in and he said, you know, I love coming in your home. He said, you really make me proud because you have it so beautiful. And that's exactly what you want. Um, So I think that you just have to continue the process, but the process has to be 
faster. Mm. It just has to. It just seems like there's a lot of waiting. And, and I got approved in December 21st. I did not move in until March 3rd. Until March 3rd. How, so how long did that process take for you from beginning to end? It was a full, it was a full year and three months. Wow. Tomas is a veteran, as we've said, um, which is a population historically vulnerable to homelessness. Since 2020, veteran homelessness has actually dropped by 11 percent. That's the biggest drop in five years. Jeff, how was that achieved? It was achieved through housing and services. It's no mystery that where we invest resources, we can achieve success around ending homelessness. And when I hear Tomas talk about the advocating he did for himself, to be able to speed along that pathway and get into housing, and yet it was 15 months long, and yet it took that level of self-advocacy, it shouldn't be that hard. It really shouldn't be that hard. And when I, you know, I was so moved by DeAsia's story about the man in the tent on the couch wasting away, and I have such huge admiration for DeAsia, for her colleagues who are doing street outreach, who are taking medicine and care out to where people are, and yet... There's no reason he should have died before he moved into housing. That is a tragedy. It's, a, it's an unavoidable tragedy and one that we've got to do better to prevent. We got this question from Kokomo Kid who tweets, Do other developed countries like the UK, France, and Japan have U.S. levels of homelessness? If not, what are they doing right? Professor Colhane, what can you tell us? Well, actually, homelessness rates are lower in Europe and in Japan. Um, and they have stronger safety nets. It's easier to access benefits. Uh, income benefits are more universal. Um, they don't you know, require you know, significant disability, for example, in Japan to receive what they call survival income. Uh, and there's also more universal access to rental assistance. Now, it doesn't mean they don't have the chronic homelessness problem like we do in the United States. That problem of people with disabilities who have trouble sustaining and housing on their own without supports, that does exist throughout the world and in and, and, and Europe and the United States elsewhere. Um, so, But other countries do have much stronger safety nets. That's the bottom line. And that's why they have made much more progress in preventing homelessness. Well, Professor Colhane, this week, the Department of Housing and Urban Development released the annual homeless assessment report, and you were one of the reviewers of that report. What did you learn? Well, homelessness was essentially flat from 2020 to 2022, and I think that's because the you know federal programs associated with the pandemic assistance really were able to mitigate some of the housing challenges people had. A lot of resources were spent on emergency rental assistance. Uh, there were emergency housing vouchers and eviction prevention, so a lot of resources were put in. Um, but I think if you look closer into the data, one of the concerns is that the most stubborn thing is the growth in chronic homelessness. We made 10 years of progress uh, on chronic homelessness, and, and suddenly around 2016, that reversed. We've had a 100% increase in chronic homelessness among unsheltered people uh, in that period of time. And so we need to focus more permanent supportive housing resources, which work for that population. Um, otherwise, we're, we're facing the likely continued increase. Tomas, in your experience, how often is homelessness criminalized in the way Jeffrey describes? Um, daily, if not hourly. It's not hourly. Um, there's a situation right now that's developing. I just, I go, I make it my, my business to go and, and visit and check in on um, I was, my friends that, that 
helped keep me safe during my um, my stint in McPherson Square Park, where right now McPherson Square Park is another location that is being forced to remove the encampments. First of all, when I was there, McPherson Square Park had no camps. It was just people staying on outside. Um, but because they've closed the, the encampments that were in Noma and um, Union Station, all of those individuals that did not, and I repeat, did not get housing, are now in McPherson Square Park. And this is so close to the White House, you can see it. So it is, uh, it's crazy. I went, I was there just for thanks, just before Thanksgiving. It's, it's, wow, it's sad. Um, so that is one of the biggest issues. Um, and the weather is going to get worse this week. This weekend is going to be the coldest of the year. Um, we need to do something. Um, I'm going out. I've had blankets. I'm bringing blankets to people. I've got some of the emergency shelter things and stuff like that. Um, but it's uh, it's just not safe either. Um, there are a lot of people out there, and it just gets progressively worse. And that one, that, that park, everyone has to be out of there by, I think it's April 12th. Um, they're supposed to have... Um, uh, housing for these individuals, but that park is park services. It's not city. So park services is not actually providing homes. So most of those people will just be displaced and will relocate somewhere else. And it will not be in a building. We got this email from Katrina who says, my city of Louisville, Kentucky, just passed an ordinance that enables the city to fine people for being on the street. We have an enormous lack of affordable housing, and now they have chosen to create more fear and stigma around being housed, around being unhoused. And homeless residents in Louisville face fines of $50 or more for camping and storing items on sidewalks and public spaces. I mean, Jeff, if you have people who are already in crisis, adding on fines, criminalizing uh, their housing status is not going to help. Does the federal plan provide guidance, at least, for cities and municipalities around how that can actually exacerbate an existing issue? The plan speaks out strongly against these kinds of criminalization strategies. We also released earlier this year a set of guiding principles around how to address encampments. Uh, I believe we can't have cities with people living outside everywhere. It's certainly not healthy for the people who are living in those encampments, but it's not healthy for our cities either. But you can't arrest your way out of homelessness. You can't find your way out of homelessness. You can't put people like Jeffrey, who was, who was living in a van with oil leak uh, in jail and expect that to solve anything. It's illogical. It's inhumane. And it's ineffective. What we know works is getting people as quickly as possible into housing and providing wraparound services. It's, it's in many cases more cost effective. It's certainly more humane, and it's better for all of us. Well, to that end, this week, L.A. Mayor Karen Bass announced a new program that will move people living in encampments to hotels and motels. And this approach also follows the Housing First model. As the federal government moves to make its own plan possible, what recommendations do you have for cities? It's encouraging to see Mayor Bass move with such urgency since she took office a couple of weeks ago, declaring a state of emergency in Los Angeles, using motels as a very uh, fast, easy to deploy, or at least quick to deploy strategy as an interim step before we can get people into housing. I think that strategy is acknowledging that there's not enough housing right now and that we do need some interim solutions. Uh, what I appreciate about that approach is 
treating this like the crisis that it is and moving with speed and courage. We got this tweet from Bill who says, I've worked for the Health Care for Homeless Veterans program for over a decade, which uses the Housing First strategy. I think it's important to mention that each region has its own set of challenges and resources. Professor Quilhane, as we watch this federal plan roll out and, and look at how cities and states respond, what are those regional differences we need to be aware of? Well, I think that the compelling growth in homelessness on the West Coast, which I've mentioned, you know, we're talking about, you know, Seattle, Portland, and all the cities in California. Um, They're really at a crisis point that I think much of the country is not really aware of. Uh, And uh, that particularly is is a place where we need some state uh, government assistance, housing assistance, um, and we need to perhaps concentrate or increase even some federal resources to support progress there because uh, it is an overwhelming situation. If you visited uh, any of these large cities, uh, you see the extent of suffering. Um, 75% of the people who are homeless in California are unsheltered, um, you know, whereas in a place like New York or in, in the Midwest, Northeast in general, that's less than 10%, in many places less than 5%. Uh, so it's a, it's a significantly different issue in the way it's presenting, the scale uh, the suffering and, and, and the response has to correspond to that. Tomas, I would want to end with you um, as we wrap up in these final seconds. You're still in touch, as you said, with some of the people who remain unhoused in D.C. What kind of support is most helpful right now? Um, just getting them into a building um, for safety because it's an ongoing battle. Um, and then also, as we were talking earlier, it's about being homeless. If you don't have access to proper services, you are not really taking care of your health. And so it just continues to decline. So I find coordinated efforts with all of the different agencies, making sure that we're making a, a, a concerted effort to get people housed. That is housing first is number one and making the process as swift as possible. That's Tomas Banks. He's a veteran in D.C. who was previously homeless. Also with us, Dennis Colhane, a professor of social policy at the University of Pennsylvania, and Jeff Olivet, the executive director of the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.